Okay, so we left off after the last time with the, the breakdown of the individual branches of government, and we wanted to kind of do a deep dive into the executive branch, which encompasses. We wanted to do a deep dive into the executive branch, and once again, we have our favorite history teacher back, Jean Anzanakis. So, Ms. Anzanakis, why don't we get into the presidency? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of people think that being president is having the ability to do whatever you want to do. And that is not the case. Yes, you have a lot of different roles that you play. You are considered the most powerful man in the world, but that also comes with a lot of limitations. And so if you look at the Constitution, Article 2 of the Constitution devotes itself entirely to the executive branch. And there are certain requirements that are specifically listed they need to be a United States-born citizen. Now, this was important because they didn't want somebody coming over from England and trying to be king or trying to be president. Uh, I mean, eventually that would also encompass other countries, but the main worry at that point in time was Great Britain, you know? Uh, you have to be at least 35 years old, a resident of the United States for 14 years, and then they thought of terms. Well, how long is this executive going to be in office? And so ultimately they came up with a term of four years, but there was no limit on the number of terms that a president could serve. George Washington was the first president of the United States. And as president, he set a number of precedents. Um, a precedent is an example that is followed as if it were a law. And up until the time of President FDR, every president had served no more than two terms. George Washington, I mean, talk about a modest guy. You know, when they came to, you know, what do we call the president? People were throwing things around like his majesty, the president of the United States. And George Washington very, you know, modestly said, simply call me Mr. President. He serves his first term. They say, please run again. He runs again. He serves his second term. They say, Mr. President, please run again. And here they are handing him power on a silver plate. And he says, no, I've, you've just you know, waged a war to get rid of one king. Why do you want another? I am done. And he kind of sets back and allows somebody else to take the job. So that precedent of two terms set by George Washington was followed until FDR. He serves, well, he doesn't serve four full terms, but he's elected for four terms. And when he ran for that unprecedented third term, people were saying, you know, you can't do that. And he said, show me where. Show me where in the Constitution it says I can't. And nobody could. And so after he dies in office, the 22nd Amendment was passed to the Constitution, which formally limited the president to two terms with a total of number of years of 10. So a president could finish out a remainder of another person's term, you know, a vice president, and they could be elected in their own right to two terms, but as long as that doesn't equal to more than 10 years. Okay, so we know how we got to our four-year term and, and the max of two. The president wears a lot of hats. What kind of roles and responsibilities fall under the executive branch? So the president does many things, and the president has to be able to wear multiple hats at the same time. So probably the most important job that the president has is that the president is really the face of the nation. 
he will travel abroad he will meet foreign dignitaries he will um you know go to areas of the country after there has been a crisis after there has been a tragedy and the job of the president is to be whatever the country needs him or maybe her someday to be and so the president you know the most simplified way of talking about what the president does is that we say that the executive branch enforces the laws the president is in charge of the executive branch but there's so much more to the presidency than that you know we say that the president is the most powerful man on the earth or the most powerful man in the world let's That's, call a person let's say the most powerful person because we're ready for a female president absolutely be the right one. absolutely you know the president is the commander-in-chief the, they will appoint officials to lead various executive departments, appoint cabinet members, federal judges, ambassadors. They can make and issue executive orders. A president can propose legislation. Just because they want to do something doesn't mean they can. But for example, you know, President Roosevelt proposed the New Deal. Many of those things were enacted and became laws. The president will help to negotiate treaties after a, a war. Congress has to approve it before it becomes a law, another example of checks and balances, but the president can negotiate those. The president can negotiate trade deals. The president can pardon individuals convicted of a crime. That's a very important perk of the president. You can, you know, give a pardon. Then, of course, in order for a bill to become a law, the president has to put his or her signature on that bill. You know, we all remember that. You know, how does a bill become a law video that we watch mm-hmm. from Schoolhouse Rock? The president if he or she does not like that bill, can veto. The president typically has 10 days to sign. If the president refuses or vetoes the bill, it can be overridden and become a law anyway, where the president essentially lets the bill die. So if a bill is received by the president within the final 10 days of the congressional session, and the president is, you know, doesn't really like the bill, but doesn't want to give it back in time for them to override the presidential veto, he can kind of just let, let it, it die. Let it die it's on kind the of desk. like a nonverbal <laughs> FU to the legislative branch. Go ahead. You like this so much, you can take it up during the next session. But those are just some of the roles that the president can play. And along with those roles, there are also many restrictions for the president. You know, that that essential checks and balances to make sure that this executive did not become a tyrant. So the president can appoint officials, but the Senate has to approve them. The legislative branch, as we talked, can override a presidential veto. And of course, one of the biggest things is that the president cannot declare war. Now, this was very important on the part of the framers of the Constitution to put that power of declaring war to the House and the Senate, where there is a greater number of people that would have to agree on whether or not our country should go to war. This should not be left on the, so- the shoulders of one person. It's going to be left up to many people. So the president can go to the legislative branch and ask or plead his or her case as to why the nation should go to war, but that one solitary individual doesn't get to be the one to make that decision. But the president does have the right to send troops to an area. Now, a recent example of this would be in January of 2020, when the United States Embassy in Baghdad was attacked. President Trump sent troops to the Middle East. Now, the president has the right to do this, but there have been times in our nation's history where past presidents have used this power 
and then as a result gotten our nation involved in foreign conflicts without the approval of the legislative branch. And so in 1973, with the Vietnam War as the backdrop, the War Powers Act of 1973 was passed. And this is meant to limit the president's ability to start or escalate military actions abroad. And so there's a limit as to how long troops can stay in an area. And that number is roughly 60 days. Now, has have troops stayed in an area longer than that? Yes. Um, do presidents test the water with this? Yes. But there is that limitation there. And so they must notify Congress within 48 hours of doing this. But the president does have that leeway to make those decisions that he or she deems necessary and essential for the safety of the United States to send troops to a certain area. So other examples of this might be um, what? Well, prior to the War Powers Act would be, you know, President Johnson, President Kennedy sending troops to Vietnam. It would be um, President George W. Bush sending troops with Operation Iraqi Freedom. It could be uh, President Bill Clinton sending troops uh, to the Balkans. There are a number of different reasons. You without know, without a formal declaration of, of war. No, yeah, of just... course, without that normal declaration of war, yes. Now the president can't do it all alone, so there is the vice president. Now, the Constitution, when it was written, had a very limited description about the vice president. And John Adams, who, much to his chagrin, was the first vice president and not the first president, that was probably the most difficult role for him. At that point in time, the vice president was essentially the president of the Senate and could not speak unless there was a tie. And for anybody who knows John Adams, this was like a, face, faith, a fate worse than death because he was a talker. He loved to hear himself talk. He was a, a lawyer. And so for him to have to sit there and listen to other great men debate and get their say and they were very quick to remind him when he did try to speak, slow your roll, this is not your time, and he just had to sit there. And for the vice president today, their role or influence is essentially decided by the president. And so there have been some presidents and vice presidents who have gotten along. And most vice presidents, their talents are taken into consideration. For example, for President Kennedy, he used Lyndon Johnson to work the legislative branch to his benefit. He was a schmoozer. He knew people in the legislative branch. He knew how to get over on people in the legislative branch. So if there was an issue there, that was his right-hand man. But then you've had other presidents and vice presidents who have hated, loathed each other. You know, probably the most famous historical example of this would be Andrew Jackson and John C. Calhoun. You know, John C. Calhoun ultimately becomes the first vice president to resign. There was this famous story where they were both giving toasts and, you know, President Jackson completely embarrasses John C. Calhoun after John C. Calhoun puts President Jackson in a position where he thinks he has no choice but to support him. And, you know, Jackson makes it very clear the union above all. 
and that was it. I mean, it just didn't work so, out well. So they, they had they had situations where they didn't like each other or loathed or hated each other, but now they used to be where it was the president and the person who finished second in the election became the vice president. Yes. When did that change? Well, with the 12th Amendment. So you have... When, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the Electoral College a little later on, but essentially how it worked was whoever received the greatest number of votes became president, and whoever received the second highest number became the vice president. So, oh, congratulations, you want to be president, but now you can get this number two job. Now, for Washington and Adams, this was okay, because for the most part, political parties really hadn't taken root just yet. They're emerging, they're there, they're evident within that political arena, but it became a complete disaster in the election of 1800. So John Adams is elected president, the second president of the United States, and his vice president is Thomas Jefferson. So now you have a president and a vice president who are in two completely different political parties. Really great friends, but politically, it was a disaster. So much so that at the end of Adams's first and ultimately only term as president, Thomas Jefferson decides to run against him. I mean, imagine the vice president saying, you're so bad at your job. I disagree with you on so many issues. I have to run against you. And that's what Thomas Jefferson does. And neither candidate got the majority needed in the Electoral College, so it got thrown to the House of Representatives, and it took 36 ballots to get who is going to be the next president of the United States. Okay, so in the event that that happens, and they have to go down that road and Congress elects a president, what's the breakdown there? So the House of Representatives will vote on who will be the president. And so today we have 50 states. So each state gets one vote. So as long as somebody gets over 25 votes, they're the president. So all the delegates within a state need to determine how their state is voting. Is going to vote. Okay. That should be interesting. Should it happen again? Hasn't happened in a very, very long time. Well, more so now because it hasn't happened in a long time. But if it does... You know, you have the House electing the president and you have the Senate electing the vice president and, you know, which happens first because now they run on the same ticket. It used to be. Well, the president, you know, that, that vote's going to happen first, but there is, you know, another contingency plan. So if, let's say, the House is deadlocked, but the Senate has, you know, gotten their vote for vice president, the vice president would kind of act as an interim acting president until the Senate can get the votes that they need to get to pick somebody. They may need to revisit that. That might not work in today's day and age. <laughs> because then you have you have you're you're choosing a vice president from two tickets, you know, one from each party, and then the president might be might end up being from a different party. So something to be mindful of in the future. All right, so the other thing that you mentioned that the president has the ability to do is to nominate, whether it be ambassadors, 
or, mm -hmm. or select or appoint ba ambassadors overseas or cabinet members or you know people to run certain agencies and I recall President Trump not doing that when he first got in I don't and now he ran into problems because of that tell me how that how that kind of works so when a new political party is coming into power in the executive branch if you're going from a democratic president to a republican president which is what we've just seen typically people who hold federal jobs know they're about to be out of a job and this new person in office is going to replace them with republican party supporters you know there's a great story of when you know Bill Clinton leaves office, a lot of the employees removed the W from all the keyboards so that when the new president's staff came in, they couldn't type the president's name, George W. Bush, like saying, hey, you know, that was kind of like their joke on the new people coming in. And, you know, there were a lot of articles that talked about how, you know, the first visits to the White House after President Trump is elected there was a big reality check where he realizes I have to replace thousands of workers. You know, wouldn't these people keep their jobs if they're good at their jobs? Shouldn't they be able to keep their job? Which is also an important question to ask. You know, should somebody simply have a job supporting the executive branch because they happen to be a member of the right political party at the moment. If somebody is good at their job, they should keep it. You know, if you are good at being an ambassador to XYZ, stay. Yeah, but there might be differences of opinion on policy, which I think is is kind of what happened where these people came in as, you know, quote unquote witnesses, even though they weren't, you know, firsthand witnesses, but even during the course of the impeachment, which I know we're going to talk about impeachment another time, but the um, the whole point to it was he he had people that weren't necessarily in agreement with him. Well, you know, I think the the whole idea of let's say a president's cabinet also you know goes back to George Washington. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that the president should have a cabinet, but he realizes I don't know. All there is to know about everything so I need people who are going to be or become experts on one particular area who can be a sounding board who can provide me with feedback ultimately the decision to do what needs to be done is going to rest with me but these are my advisors these are the people that are going to help me get to the decision point now you raise a very important question are you always going to agree with your boss? People who hold those appointments serve at the pleasure of the president. And you are going to not always agree with your boss. You know, when you're working, what your boss says typically goes, right? If you want to keep your job. And so you can be doing your job for four years, for five years, for 12 years, and a new person comes in and they want to change the way things are being done. You are disagreeing with policy. I think it's good to have somebody who says, I disagree with you. I think that this might not be the best course of action. Because if you have everybody sitting at the table that's telling somebody, yes, that's a great idea. 
Yeah, you don't want you don't want yes men. No, in those ha- situations, you, you, you need, need people, to do it yeah. in a respectful way. But to have somebody who's saying, you know, I think we might need to look at it from a different perspective. I uh, maybe we could consider this, or you know, don't forget about possible consequences to making this choice as opposed to that choice. So they're in a true advisory role to the president, which is why the president can, because they are like sounding boards, right? So they're thinking out loud. So sometimes things are said and then the advisor would be like, hey, you don't want to do that. You know, uh, and so when when it comes down to, let's say, them being a witness for, let's say, the impeachment, let's say John Bolton in this most recent impeachment thing, because he's acting as a sounding board, the president might say, and he'd be like, hey, you can't do that. And, you know, they might ask him, did the president say this? And he could say, yes, the president said this. But it was during the, it wasn't the decision. It wasn't the final decision. It was, it was kind of, hey, this is how it happened. Or, you know, are you guilty just for thinking something wrong? You know, you, that's, this is why I feel you have advice. And I think you're right. I think you, you do want to have experts in certain areas. Um, because you want to surround yourself with a team. You can be CEO, but you want to have people running different departments, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think we're, we're kind of out of time. We, we had an ambitious docket here. Um, maybe you can come back and talk about the Electoral College and how the person can become president. We covered a lot of what they do, but we do want to dig into that. So we'll do another podcast on that one. Absolutely.